My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com, and today is one of the biggest podcasts of the year as we are doing our deep dive discussion about a little film called Spider-Man No Way Home. Now, to be clear, this is going to be a spoiler filled review. We're going to get into all the details of the plot and the big reveals, so on and so forth. Now, if you want a spoiler-free podcast, we released that earlier this week, so make sure to go check that out. But for this episode, we are going to be diving all the way in. So, this is your warning. Warning, 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 warning. This is a spoiler-filled podcast. If you haven't seen Spider-Man No Way Home yet, I suggest you tune in into our show from earlier this week. Also, at the end of the show, I'm going to be attaching our interviews with the cast of The Kingsman. We spoke with Gemma Archerton, Harris Dickinson, Jaiman Hansu, and Reese Ifans about their role in the fun yet flawed Kingsman prequel. Spider-Man No Way Home is absolutely massive. I think we all knew that going in. And I think that despite the fact that fans largely had an idea of what we were going to see, I still think that the film pulled it off in surprising ways. Um, obviously, given given that the villains from other universes were going to be in this film, I always thought it was a guarantee that the previous Spider-Man counterparts were going to be in it as well. It just it didn't make sense from a basic plotting standpoint for for villains from other worlds to appear and not have their respective heroes on their tails. So with that. Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield Spider-Man both pop up. And I think what was most surprising about that is when they popped up. I had personally thought it would be just in the third act, maybe in the final battle, perhaps to save Tom Holland's Peter Parker at the last second. But Toby and Garfield are in this for basically half the film, which I think is a nice surprise for all fans, as I'm not sure we saw that coming. We'll get into them more later, of course, but first I want to start with one of the big reveals that comes at the beginning of the film, and that is the return of Charlie Cox's Matt Murdock. As Peter Parker and Anne May and uh, Happy Hogan are trying to sort of figure out Peter Parker's legal options post the Far From Home reveal where Mysterio uh, let the world know that he was Peter Parker, Murdock seemingly shows up. I guess I would say unannounced. Like, it doesn't seem like they sought him out. I believe he sought them out. And I think what's most interesting about the fact that he's now back is sort of when and where and how he'll be used. Now, Disney Plus show is very much an option. Um, He could also serve as sort of a uh, Hulk-esque side character where he features in the big films and and sort of plays a role from there. Personally... I would like to see a Daredevil film, a straight-up, proper movie. Then this is because I think that Daredevil brings something to the MCU that they don't really have, and that's and that's sort of a sense of real anger and real, real sort of. And I know that like Hawkeye is grounded, but the way in which Matt Murdock is grounded is a bit different because he was never an Avenger. He hasn't fought aliens. He hasn't been to space. He largely exists in and around New York City dealing with street-level threats. And as we know from the latest episode of Hawkeye and warning, spoiler, warning, spoiler, warning, spoiler, warning, Kingpin is now in the MCU as well. So you would think the logical conclusion of that is that those two are going to cross paths again. In what way, shape, or form, I really don't know. But I do think it's a promising sign that their usage will be relevant in the MCU going forward. You know, could Daredevil pop up in the Hawkeye finale? I doubt it. I think that would be super fucking cool, but I just don't see it unfolding that way. As we know, there have been rumors that the character will appear in the upcoming Disney Plus series, She-Hulk, and given that both of those characters are lawyers, I think that that definitely makes the most sense. Now, from here, once Peter sort of realizes the both the legal ramifications of the world knowing his true identity and the effect it's having on his best friend's lives, i.e. them not being able to get into MIT because they know him, he goes to Doctor Strange to try to right the wrongs and, and have the world forget who he truly is. And this scene is obviously a huge crux of the film. First and foremost, 
foremost because we find out that Doctor Strange is no longer the Sorcerer Supreme. Wong is. And as I've been saying on this show for quite some time, Doctor Strange hasn't been very good at his job in the last year or so. So I think that totally makes sense. It also raises tons of questions about Wong's involvement in the Shang-Chi universe and in the post credit scene and what his role is going to be in combating the mystic threats of the MCU going forward. But I say that this scene is a crux of the film because it's a lot of where my problems arise, right? Doctor Strange's carelessness is becoming a legitimate problem in the MCU, despite the fact that he's the one tasked with quote-unquote protecting your reality douchebag whether it be because of not checking in on Wanda when she was raising hell in Jersey or casting an extremely dangerous spell for Peter's trivial needs he seems to be completely botching his duties in general and I am glad to see as the second post credit scene shows which was basically a Doctor Strange 2 trailer that his carelessness is going to be reckoned with. And yet, despite my complaints about the way Doctor Strange has been acting these last few films and shows, out of him and Peter, he is easily the most reasonable one when it comes to the multiversal threat. He immediately is trying to capture and imprison the various villains and send them back. But it's because of Peter's naivete in trying to quote-unquote save them, which is just a silly construct. Look, I understand that Peter is a teenager and acts on his heart and not his brain but as I said in the past podcast this is a kid this is yes he's a kid but this is a superhero who has learned from Tony Stark who has fought aliens in space who has already lost Uncle Ben so the fact that he's so fast and loose with the safety of his reality to save the lives of villains from other worlds villains who are trying to kill him Villains who, I mean, one of them is a lizard person, and Peter yet still tries to fix him. And I just found that to be a silly sort of plot device in order to unleash multiversal hell that we see unfold in the film. Furthermore, the idea that the master of the mystic arts could screw up such a massive spell simply because Peter is talking to him, distracting him, is also quite absurd to me. Doctor Strange is, whether he's the Sorcerer Supreme or not, he's widely considered to be the most powerful wizard or whatever in the whole world. So for him to not only attempt this spell, but to lose control of it just because Peter Parker is trying to talk to him in his ear, again, just feels like a convenient way to work the villains into the plot that I didn't really feel satisfied with. Regardless, Peter does screw up the spell, and I was actually kind of surprised with how quickly they were able to round up the various villains. He takes on Doc Ock on the bridge in a pretty thrilling scene, and by the time he returns to Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, Strange has already captured Lizard as well. So by this point, the ones running loose are Goblin, Sandman, and Electro. Strange then tasks Peter with going out to try to find and capture them and gives him this sort of magical wrist Wonder Woman bracelet shield thing that he uses to shoot multiversal casting spells at the villains to send them back to Strange's prison. And Peter largely succeeds. He's able to use Stark's nanotech to infiltrate Doc Ock's arms and sort of take control of him. So that takes Doc Ock out of the game with the help of Sandman. He's able to defeat Electro quite quickly, only for Sandman to then vaguely turn on him and he sends him back to the prison as well. So by this point, oh, and then Goblin is actually, he just kind of shows up to Aunt May's feast because he's, for a time, and it's not really clear whether he's pretending or not or is in genuine need of help, he is Norman Osborn. And he goes to Aunt May, Aunt May calls Peter and says, hey, there's this nut job here who's trying to see you. And then he brings him down to Strange's prison as well and this leads to one of my favorite dynamics of the film which was interactions between Doc Ock and Norman I loved how they were both aware of each other's past Doc Ock calls Norman a brilliant scientist but also calls him greedy and they were able to sort of converse about their past as villains and what had led them to this point this also leads to one of the film's many many self-referential jokes were in uh Norman once again says that, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Now, your mileage may vary when it comes to the film's meta nature. This is something that's laid out further in a later scene where Andrew Garfield talks about how silly Rhino was and how silly Electro's origin story of falling into a vat of 
Electric Eels is, but I quite enjoyed it because it shows a respect and acknowledgement of those old films while still being smart enough to poke fun at their objectively silly aspects. It's at this point, though, that once all of the villains are rounded up, Peter has a change of heart and decides instead of sending them to their fate of dying fighting Spider-Man, he tries to instead fix them and send them back to a safer, happier, healthy life and all that good shit. At this point, he rebels against Doctor Strange and they have that awesome sequence in the mirror dimension, but that also leads me to another complaint that I have. Peter being able to defeat Doctor Strange is absurd on its face value. Peter being able to outwit Strange in the mirror dimension, which is Strange's domain and a place that Peter has zero experience whatsoever, that also wrong absurd to me. Now, the reason that I believe that they did that is because Strange's power is such that if he were around, he would tip the scales too much in the hero's favor and wouldn't really give Peter all that much fighting to do. So while it makes sense from a plotting standpoint, from a power scale standpoint, it absolutely made no sense. There is simply no way that Peter, by using geometry, is able to web up Doctor Strange and effectively sideline him until the third act. And this launches into another scene that I thought was quite silly. Peter brings them to Happy Hogan's apartment for a sort of powwow, which again, seeing villains converse is a thrill. That was probably my, more so than seeing Spider-Man share screen, seeing the villains interact and discuss their paths and their motivations was extremely enjoyable. Once at La Casa de Happy, Peter uses Stark Tech, which I believe was called the Fabricator, which is essentially like a high-tech 3D printer from what I understood to try to uh, create antidotes for lack of a better term to fix the villains and this was actually one of the smarter things that i think that they did because as brandon and i had talked about going into this film i needed them to explain why doc ock was a bad guy again is at the end of spider-man 2 he very much found redemption and went back to being the kind otto octavius that we knew at the start of the film so to have him be the only one who was fixed in that scene i thought was smart because not only does it take him off the board as a bad guy but it allows him to effectively be a good guy later in the film furthermore i think the goblin being the one to unravel the plan was also quite smart as his sheer insanity is simply more explicable than that of electro lizard and sandman who just seem to go along with the plan for sake of villainy lizard is an animal and lacks critical thinking skills Electro was basically just horny for the arc reactor, and Sandman, I'm not sure what the hell Sandman was thinking, especially since he initially tries to help Peter. This plan, of course, all goes to shit when Green Goblin retakes over Norman Osborn's consciousness, talks the other villains into saying, fuck this shit, we don't need to be fixed, let's go back to doing what we do best, and that's killing Spider-Man. And this leads to what I thought was one of the film's best fight scenes between Spider-Man and Goblin because it is ruthless. They are beating the shit out of each other, whether it be the veracity of the punches they throw. I mean, Peter is absolutely wailing on Goblin, and he hits him with one of those classic insane laughs, and it's yet another notch in this character's belt of truly being one of the most menacing villains in comic book film history. It reminded me of the scene in The Dark Knight where Batman and Joker are in the interrogation room and Batman is pummeling Joker and Joker says, you have nothing to threaten me with with all your strength. And I got very much of the same vibe here. I'm not sure Peter had ever hit anybody that hard and yet here he was to doing it to Goblin who was not only eating it but enjoying it. So it just added an extra layer to how truly threatening he was and is. Whether it be the way that they're crash landing through the floors, whether it be the iconic uh, Green Goblin pumpkin bomb and exploding in Peter Parker's face, all of that worked for me. And it also led to one of the film's more substantial moments, which is the death of Aunt May, who then delivers the iconic with great power comes great responsibility. And this really kicks in what Tom Holland has teased is the darkest of his Spider-Man films, yeah, and that is absolutely the case because you really come to realize the enormous sacrifice that this teenager, whether it be impacting the lives of his friends, impacting his own future, 
and losing the person he's probably closest to in this world sort of all in one foul swoop. And to Tom Holland's credit, I thought he absolutely nailed it. We have all known that he could do the quippy, teenager, fun, goofy version of Peter, but to see him reach these new dark depths, not only as a Peter Parker actor, but as a performer in general, was something that I had not seen yet and was very glad to see in this film. From here, with Peter sort of lost in his way and understandably going through an extremely difficult battle with super heroic depression, the story shifts to Ned and MJ, who are at Ned's house, and Ned, having a sort of magical ring that Peter had snagged off Strange, is able to open portals as he says, you know, help us find Spider-Man, blah, blah, blah. This is, of course, the biggest moment in the film as the first one to come through said portal is Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. Now, to be clear, I believe it was Doctor Strange's spell that brought them into the universe itself, so Ned isn't channeling another universe. He's just opening the doorway to where the other Spider-Man currently are in that world. And this is tough, because while it's difficult to complain about the inclusion of past Spider-Man, especially the way in which they worked it into the plot, I would have preferred their arrival to be more epic and more heroic than the way that it was played for comedy in that sense. At the time of the film, it does make sense, though, because we're coming off the heavy, heavy death of Aunt May, so to sort of lighten the mood with all of MJ's jokes about having Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man prove himself and climb across the wall and yada 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 that was that was wise from a tonal standpoint but in terms of a just sheer epicness standpoint i would have preferred something a little more grandiose shortly thereafter toby Maguire's spider-man also joins the party and this leads to them tracking down tom holland's peter parker and the three of them converging for the first time which obviously is a conduit for one of the most thrilling parts of the film and that's seeing the three of them interact and Converse. And I think my favorite part of it all was how the two previous Spider-Men both carried the past weight of their failings and their lives as heroes. Andrew Garfield and Toby are both amazing in this respect in different ways. Andrew clearly still uh, broken up over the death of Gwen Stacy. Toby just sort of as the world-weary, gritty, worn-down, almost dad-esque version of Spider-Man. I thought all of that stuff, especially when played off of Tom Holland's young, naive version, really, really worked well. And then to that point, the way in which the old Spider-Men saw this as an opportunity to impart their wisdom on Tom Holland and guide him and make sure that he doesn't fall victim to the same mistakes that they did is the sort of thematic depth that we hadn't seen from the Spider-Man MCU franchise so far. So not only are you getting the base level thrill of seeing them on screen again and seeing them talk to each other, but you get the thematic relevance of them using their history as these heroes to inform the future of Tom Holland's character going forward. So while this could have played out as simply fan service, it's able to avoid that by using the previous experience of Spider-Man and their films in order to impact the future of the MCU's arguably biggest character going forward. And that was, to me, a brilliant way to make sure that the return of the old Spider-Man was more than just for fun and it actually had plotting and thematic impact on where we go from here. From there, using the combined genius of the three Spider-Man, they're able to concoct antidotes, specific antidotes for each villain in order to achieve Peter's original goal of fixing them. This, of course, is filled with tons of banter between the three of them, Ned trying to figure out how to communicate with Peter when they're all named Peter, them talking about the spider tingle, all, all that stuff works, and it's a nice moment of levity before the big final third act battle. The third act battle, of course, takes place on a newly recommissioned version of the Statue of Liberty as she's now holding Captain America's shield, which again continues the conversation of Steve Rogers' legacy within this world and how they are reckoning not just heroes, but the general public with that in light of his death. Now, I don't think it's a hot take to say that the third act battle is probably the highlight of the film because you get to see three Spider-Men work as a team, not only in terms of actual physicality, but their banter playing off each other during the course of it. We even get a taste of Tom Holland, uh, not Tom Holland, 
Toby Maguire, the score from those original films, which is beautiful. We get to see both Maguire's and Garfield's Spider-Man converse with the villains from that world and sort of pick up from where it left off and also provide further closure of those arcs. You get the overlapping of storylines where, as the trailers sort of misdirected us by showing Tom Holland, Spider-Man being the one to save MJ as she falls, it's actually Andrew Garfield who does. And the way in which he asks MJ if she's okay, and just the sheer look on his face is great acting. I actually thought that Garfield was probably the highlight of the film. His Spider-Man was largely the one who's been underchanged and undersold throughout all these years, so for him to get sort of one final heroic hurrah, while also being able to deal with his own personal tragedy adds a new layer of story and depth to the character that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. With the help of both Doc Ock and Doctor Strange, who both return after not appearing in the previous half an hour hour or so, they're able to neutralize Electro, Lizard, and Sandman, leaving Green Goblin as the only one left. And again, I thought a real highlight was the pure violence of... Tom Holland's Spider-Man in this moment as he once again beats the ever-living shit out of Goblin who largely seems to enjoy it. He even gets redemption on Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man after failing to kill him in the first one. He actually gets to stab him this time around and while Maguire's Spider-Man didn't die and I think it was kind of a trendy take going into this film that people thought that he may just given the point that he was at in his life and his relevance to the franchise going forward it was nonetheless devastating in that moment regardless you really feel that final blow when Garfield comes over to talk to him and ask him if he's okay all of that stuff underlines what was a general sort of third act battle with real genuine emotion despite the fact that all the villains are rounded up though there's still a major problem. Strange is sort of unable to close the multiversal hole. And in the sky, as the sky is cracking open, you see tons and tons of villains and characters from other worlds. And while it will likely take repeat viewings to see them all, I thought the one front and center was Rhino. And we also get a hint of Craven, I believe, as well. And this leads Peter to making the ultimate with great power comes great responsibility sacrifice. He realizes at this point that this is his doing because of his power and his desire to right the wrongs of his past. But he realizes that the only way forward is to enact Strange's original plan and have everyone forget who Peter Parker truly is. And this, I thought, was a fitting conclusion for Tom Holland's Peter Parker's arc so far. Whereas Homecoming saw Peter trying to use the benefits of being Spider-Man in his own personal life, and Far From Home saw him trying to shirk those responsibilities for the sake of his personal life, this film concludes with Peter truly understanding what it means to be a hero, and that means not doing what's best for you. That's doing what's best for those you love. And even though it comes at a great emotional and personal toll, he now understands what needs to be done and tell Strange, go ahead, let the world forget who I am, and that of course leads to an emotional goodbye with MJ, which would likely, I would imagine, fetch some tears at a lot of people in the audience. And it further hammers home the core of this story, and that is a Peter Parker story. You know, going into it, it was hard not to be worried that Peter Parker's personal arc would get lost in all the multiversal chaos, but this film was able to avoid that by focusing on his relationships with MJ, Ned, and May. Tom Holland, I thought, crushed it. I thought put forth his best performance as Peter Parker yet. And that all sort of culminates in this final embrace with the girl that he loves. Now, as per their plan in the final moments of the film, Peter goes to MJ's coffee shop that she works at to read her a letter and sort of remind her of their past relationship and explain everything that happened. But he once again, instead of doing what's best for Peter, understands the ideology of with great power comes great responsibility and takes on the responsibility of being Spider-Man on his own. He chooses, seeing that MJ and Ned this time around got into MIT, chooses to let them exist in the ignorance's bliss of not knowing his true identity, which of course is a devastating acceptance for Peter, 
but it further highlights how much he's grown as a hero so far. This is a decision that he would have never made in past films. Past films go out of their way to highlight how Peter is trying to balance both. Even Doctor Strange says at one point, the problem is you trying to live two lives, and he understands he could no longer do that and chooses instead to forge forward on his own. Will that be the case forever? No, absolutely not. The dynamic between Zendaya's MJ and Tom Holland's Peter Parker is simply too tantalizing for them to bury. But nevertheless, it serves as what I thought is honestly one of the best MCU endings so far, particularly not only plotting-wise, but particularly in terms of underscoring a hero's development and growth. At the end of the day, despite the fact that these are superheroes, what makes a movie excellent is character development and Peter's final decision hammers that home. Now, as we all know, no MCU movie would be complete without post credit scenes and this one boasts two excellent ones. The first of which, which features a character that some of us thought may appear in this film itself, I didn't because I just thought it would be too much to explain, is Tom Hardy's Venom sitting at a bar trying to understand this new world that he's in. And in fact, the bartender, fans of Ted Lasso, will recognize that that's the actor who plays Danny Rojas. Now, this is fascinating to me because given all the speculation since the Venom 2 post credit scene revealed that he was now in the MCU, given the tug of war between Sony and Marvel, fans had largely assumed that Tom Hardy's Venom would just now be in the MCU going forward. But based on this post credit scene, that doesn't seem to be the case. As Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock is trying to wrap his head around this new world, he is in fact apparently sent back to his previous Sony universe. However, a piece of the symbiote is left behind. Who that's going to attach to, I don't know. Maybe it will seek out this universe's Eddie Brock, who, for all we know, may also be played by Tom Hardy, but I think the implication of this is that, despite what fans may have hoped or wanted for, Tom Hardy is now back where he began. And now for the second post-credit scene, which isn't really a post-credit scene at all. It's actually a teaser for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which for me is one of the most highly anticipated MCU films going forward. Not only because Doctor Strange is my favorite Avenger, not only because Sam Raimi is directing it, not only because it's going to be leaning into horror, but because it seems to be really leaning into the dangers of the multiverse, as evidenced by the appearance of the evil Doctor Strange from What If. This is something that I've been predicting for some time. I have long thought that you simply don't introduce a character that powerful, combined with all the implications of the multiverse, and not have him cross over into live action. But before we get into that, let's talk about a few of the reveals in the teaser. First of which we see Strange confronting Shuma Garath, which is another character that had appeared in What If. So clearly this film is going to have a lot of ties to that show. It also introduces Miss America, confirms the return of Baron Mordo, hints at what Scarlet Witch's arc is going to be, etc., etc. One of the most fascinating lines, I thought, was when Baron Mordo tells Strange that the greatest threat to our universe is you. So that's going to clearly be continuing Mordo's arc that had been established at the end of Doctor Strange 1, where he is branching off and becoming sort of the anti-Strange and trying to put the clasp on him, for lack of a better term. And as the voiceover of Mordo telling Strange that the greatest threat to our universe is you, Strange could be seen walking through a sort of decrepit, alternate reality sanctum sanctorum which is reminiscent kind of of where we encountered um kang at the end of loki in the sense that it seems to exist outside of reality and in space-time itself and in this sort of alternate sanctum sanctorum he runs into evil doctor strange who says things have just gone out of hand now does this mean that evil doctor strange is going to be the main villain of the film i don't necessarily think Think so. I think it's going to be a combination of Mordo and perhaps Wanda going off the deep end even more than she already is. But the inclusion of him in and of itself is a massive, massive plot thread going forward. Because whereas Spider-Man No Way Home opened the multiverse to other past realities, it didn't introduce versions of the character that we hadn't seen yet we had already previously encountered these villains we had already previously encountered these other spider-men but here we're encountering we're encountering not only a villain that we haven't yet seen in live action but somebody who implies that there are other evil versions of this car of these characters out there 
Now, while there's a very real chance that the quote-unquote evil Doctor Strange is just trying to help our version from repeating the same mistakes that he did, I think it would be a huge missed opportunity to not have these two go head-to-head throughout the film. Hopefully, the reveal of evil Doctor Strange comes towards the end and is sort of the culmination and the final battle, but from this teaser, we really can't tell yet. All right, so I think that's it. I think we covered our bases. We talked about the villains, we talked about Peter Parker's arc, we talked about the inclusion of other Spider-Men and the self-referential nature of their past and the further development of the characters that this provided. We talked about both post credit scenes. I suppose really the only thing left to touch on is where Tom Holland's Peter Parker goes from here. Now, Sony and Marvel have basically confirmed that a new trilogy is on the way and given everything that has happened and the development that the character has gone through in his first three films and this particular those will largely look very different than these did whereas these were very focused as his life as a teenager i now expect peter parker having made the ultimate with great power comes great responsibility sacrifice to become more of an adult character and therefore more of a centerpiece of the mcu as a whole we know morbius is going to hit theaters in a couple months. We know that film is also going to be featuring Michael Keaton's Vulture, at least for a little bit, so maybe those characters will be looped in. We know Aaron Taylor-Johnson is going to be playing Craven in a Craven solo film, which is set to hit theaters, I believe, in 2023. I would love to hear what villains you guys would like to see Peter Parker take on next. It's very possible that the next time we see him is in an event film and not an actual Spider-Man solo film, but given the unprecedented success that Noah Helm is surely going to warrant, I would imagine they are already working on Spider-Man 4. From my point of view, since we know that Kraven is on the way, I think Sony and MCU Sony and the MCU are angling towards a Craven Last Hunt story, as that is largely considered to be one of the greatest Spider-Man, one of, if not the greatest Spider-Man stories ever told. We also know that the symbiote is now kicking around the MCU, so if I had to guess, I would imagine Spider-Man 4 features some combination of Venom and Craven. So with that, I hope you enjoyed our spoiler discussion and review. Now we're going to take a quick break before we get into our interview with the cast of The Kingsman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Folks, today I am joined by Jaiman Hansu and Reese Iffens, who are starring in The Kingsman, which hits theaters on December 22nd. And gentlemen, since I'm sure you'll get a ton of them today, I will spare you both questions about Black Adam and Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> that, was, that, that one's for you. <laughs> Jaiman, uh, I yes, want to start with you. How did the experience of working on this film differ from other action films you've done because you've done quite a few yes uh to say that the experience was painful but at the same time very uh you know gratifying i mean just looking at how it was put together that particularly that sequence with uh reese uh and myself and uh, the duke of oxford and uh, harris um it was yeah it was, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, you know, I've had a number of experiences in, you know, like you said, uh, but this was definitely a surprise and uh, it came with a tremendous challenge, uh, you know, with the physicality. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So then you sort of touch on uh, something I wanted to ask about. How much training went into that scene you guys did? Because the cor- choreography is pretty intense. Yeah, a lot. I mean, I was, um, you know, an action virgin, shall we, shall we say. <laughs> so, yeah, it was kind of uh, amazing. You know, we, we we trained, got in physical training, you know, just to not so much strength, but that as well, but just in terms of stamina in order to get us to a, a level of fitness that would allow us to film this scene over a period of two to three weeks, you know, on, on 14, 15 hour days, you know. So that happened two or three months before we start, saw a camera, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And then, of course, after after the training every day, we'd we'd go, we'd work with the stunt team, who were just mind blowingly uh, efficient and 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 expert at what they did. Um, um, extraordinary. So it, for me, it was a real, it was just a joy to to learn this completely new discipline, you know, and be surrounded by these this team of guys who were at the top of their game, you know, Jaiman included, because Jaiman had experience in this field, so. You know, I've I've never felt safer on set than when this guy was around. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it it was amazing. And then, of course, you know, to 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 you know, generally for me in my experience of acting, you shoot you shoot a scene, and then you you can imagine pretty much how it's going to look like. But in this case, you know, to see the finished finished product. Mm-hmm. Is like I feel like a member of the audience. Like it's mind blowing, you know. Right. To, so to, that's to, really to, you doing those twirls. No, we we had we had some Georgian dancers. We had we had kung fu well, guys. Wait, 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 wait. But, but you got to tell them the story of the Georgian dancers, how they came about, how that whole you know the theme of your style. Yeah. Of fighting. Well, we we were trying to find a language, a physical language for Rasputin that was specific and unique to Rasputin, and and you know we we were kind of struggling with that. And then Matthew burst into the stunt room one day and went, "I've got it." <laughs> Um, Russian dancing and martial arts, mix them up. You know what I mean? And then the, we're all just standing there going, what? And then suddenly we, you know, the the moves these Russian guys do, uh, or they're Georgian, actually, I forgive me. I don't want to insult the Georgians. They're Georgian dancers. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys train from the age of like three or four years old to pull these moves. Even the stuntmen couldn't do them. So a lot of a lot of the stuff they do a lot. Of, I mean, I literally had to learn it all. A lot of the stuff, you know, I had to do, albeit on wires um, and you know the spins. There was one who specialized in floor work, one who specialized in aerial work, and then you know I worked so intensely with these two guys and got very close to them, and they were as amazed by our world as we were by theirs. You know, um, they they'd never been on a film set before, let alone a Matthew Vaughan film set. You know. So it was this it was this brilliant kind of collision of cultures and disciplines and and um and then you know I I helped them with rasputinizing the 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 moves you know I'm gonna ask about adding, him <laughs> adding little bits of humor and you know you know dare I say filth uh, into the proceedings you know what I mean so it it was it was the kind of it was great to watch because you knew it was it was it was a collaboration of the highest order. You know, we all brought our best game to that um, to that scene in particular, um, and um, it was very satisfying to see the final product. Yeah, I'd say your hard work paid off because that scene, as is the whole film, is a blast. And based on your comments, you make Matt Vaughn sound like a mad scientist. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, he 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 he. I mean, he. I think he'd quite take that as a compliment. You know. Yeah, he is absolutely. A, he he is a, a, a um, an extraordinary director. You know, his understanding of the camera and how it moves and how it will project. He's const he constantly is thinking, how is this gonna look on a big screen? Right. You know what I mean? And and his understanding of symmetry, for example, and all of that it, it is comes into play. And um it was very it was a world of pain, but it was uh, it was it was gratifying. Yeah. So, Reese, I want to ask you about Rasputin. How much of the character was on the page and how much did you bring to it yourself? Because, and I I wrote this in my notes, damn, this dude was something else. Well, um, uh, you you know, a a lot of it's on the page, but of course you bring your own, you know, Matthew was keen that I bring my own kind of sense of mischief to the proceedings, if you like. But listen, um, everything, all my choices were inspired by um, the real man by Rasputin himself, you know, who who was himself a fantastical, larger than life figure who who loomed over the, the Russian psyche then and now. You know, he looked different to anyone of that time. Everyone in that period had the same haircut, seemingly, you know, um, except for Rasputin. You know, Rasputin looks like this guy who has who runs a satanic wellness clinic. Um, so. You know, I had to. This is not a guy you want a colonic irrigation from. I can tell you that. <laughs> right. Um, you know, he, he. So he he had to be mad, bad, and dangerous, which is which is how he was described in in history. 
Um, so really, all the elements, uh, everything I, I, I bring to the screen is, is, is stuff that I read about Rasputin, and it is slightly tweaked and twisted and magnified uh, in order to suit the scene at any given time. Well, well done, because um, I think he is one of the most unique screen villains I've seen in some time. Jaiman, you worked very closely with Ray Fiennes in this, and sort of in my line of work, moments of this are like the championship game in sports, right? Like, it's what I look forward to most. When you're sharing a scene with one of the true greats, does it inspire you to to raise your game? Do you get more excited for those scenes? Oh, if so, of course. Okay, of please. Of course, go ahead. it enhances. Of course, it enhances everything you do as well because you're in the master class. You know, almost like a student uh, watching uh, the professor at work. And uh, uh, wow, yes, definitely, it elevates all. It elevates the playing field for sure. And as a performer, do you look forward more to the dramatic scenes versus the fight scenes, or is it all one and the same for you? Well, it's, uh, I think it's all uh, one and the same. I mean, uh, well, the action, uh, it's, uh, it's another set of drama in, you know, uh, it's, another, uh, it's another stage of drama, yeah, if you will. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, but. no, please, gents. It was an honor to talk to you both. I think you were both great in this. The Kingsman hits theaters on December 22nd, and I'm sure you both have massive, massive films in the works that we will talk about in the coming months. So thank you very much. Thank you, so much. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Same, yeah. same guys. Take care. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, today I am joined by Gemma Archerton, who you might know from films such as Quantum of Solace, Clash of the Titans, and Hansel and Gretel, and Harris Dickinson, who has starred in projects such as Trust and Maleficent. You can catch them both in The Kingsman when it hits theaters on December 22nd. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Hi. Hi, guys. Gemma, I want to start with you. I read that you have your own production company that focuses on creating female-led content. How did Polly subvert expectations that audiences usually have for female characters in action films? And why is that important? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the Kingsman franchise is, uh, you know, the, the, the Kingsman sort of secret service, I guess, the kind of core of the Kingsman is a very male dominated um, world. And Polly is the first one really to... Um, to first female and um she is uh she is a you know a really strong woman she's she's very very capable very very intelligent keeps the whole thing sort of running very integral to the the running of the the the, the service the secret service um and so for me it was really important because you know notoriously in these sorts of genres of films the women could tend to be kind of decorative and um and so it was when I read the script, I was like, please don't let her be that. And she wasn't. So I was thrilled. So I thought, okay, she's got stuff to do. Um, and um, and that's yeah, it's so important going forward that that's 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 the role. So um I was thrilled. Plus, I felt she was very much both the heart and the brain of the team. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you thought so. Yeah. Um <laughs> Harris, despite living what I imagine is a very different life than yours, which is obviously the case quite often in your job, what about this character appealed to you? And what about him did you relate to him the most with? Well, I think I saw from from the get-go, I kind of saw this young man um, dealing with a somewhat like high-pressured environment in the sense that his father had these very strict um sets of of kind of conduct and and moral code to to live by and um it it was like he was part of the very sort of formal aristocracy but he wanted to break free of it and be defined by his own sort of endeavors so i think um it was something that i i saw into as like a universal thing of being a young um, man or young woman wanting to, you know, explore things for yourself. And it's like that weird thing of no matter who uh, or how much someone tells you to do something, you, you, you normally want to learn that for yourself um, or learn the hard way, I suppose. So uh, it's something I've been through, definitely. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a theme that's sort of wanting to break free of what your parents want for you is something that, you know, spreads across all times. Yeah. Um. So you both got to share some pretty emotional scenes with Ray Fiennes, who I think is genuinely one of the finest actors we have. As a performer, is there a sense of excitement? And this is for, for you both. As a performer, is there a sense of excitement that goes into sharing scenes with such iconic figures? And does it uh, inspire you to sort of raise your game? I mean, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know, Harris, you agree, but, you know, no, knowing that you have like to kind of go into these scenes with Ray Fiennes or any of the actors on this show, because to be honest, it was, you know, everywhere you looked, there was a kind of acting legend. Um, I had a scene with Alison Steadman, which, you know, I don't know if you know her, but she's a bit of a British legend and she's only in it for like one minute. But for me, she was like the reason I decided to be an actress. <laughs> so yeah. I was I'm so class hero. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, it's like a really amazing person. But um, yeah, you have to bring it and you have to kind of just, you know, hope that you're not shit. Um, excuse me. <laughs> And, um, and, but the great thing is, is that someone like Rafe, he's a real active actor. I mean, he loves acting, like he lives for it. And so I think he just wants to be in the scene with someone that's going to play and, and be present. And, um, and if you're, if you're that, then, then you're grand with him, you know? So um, it was a real pleasure working with him. And I felt like, wow, you know, just learned so much from him. He's so um, diligent and so detailed in his work and um, very focused. And yeah, it was, it was amazing. Harris, you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was nervous, I won't lie. I was quite intimidated by, um, <laughs> by working with him and everyone, like Gemma said, I always get quite daunted. Uh, it's always daunting working with actors you admire and, and uh, I think you know there's this weird thing when you're when you're doing scenes with someone who's um who's incredible you, I personally sometimes struggle to like just stay present and I just start watching them and and you have to remember to be like you know involved and give rather than just sort of marvel at what they're doing but um yeah I mean like like Gemma said he is so um so committed to the craft and I think that's set like a really good tone throughout the film and throughout the set because everyone sort of knew that when Rafe stepped on set it was like you know it was time to work and time to find find the scene in the best way and it's like approaching it with the utmost sort of integrity and importance which is really like all you can ask for and for me to to watch that it was like massive massive learning curve yeah yeah, when he when when the top guy sets that bar, it just inspires the whole cast to reach that bar. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. This is for you both as well. This taking on a film that involves World War One, one of the most serious events in mankind, change your approach at all? Especially considering that the Kingsman films and this film as well are known for their sense of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's you have to honor the time and what happened, and this great sense of loss I mean it was just devastating and so we felt you know that's what sets this film apart from the the previous two Kingsman films it is historical and there is you know there are real real life events taking place so there is a slightly more sort of serious tone in parts but I think you know that's one of the things I love about this film is that it and it's so unique in this aspect it it, it is serious and there are heavy moments that you know where you feel all of those things and yet there's still that kind of Kingsman signature of the fun and the in the right moments you know there's a cheek there's tongue, tongue in cheek and there's play and there's and it's kind of zany and wacky and I think that's such a Matthew Vaughan trademark um so I think he you know we all we all there was a message that Matthew wanted to convey in this film which was you know anti-war and and I think we managed to convey that but still have fun with the you know with the film as well Harris yeah totally agree with Gemma also I think like what's important to know is that throughout you know like throughout history I think we've dealt with um comedy and comedy in general has dealt with serious subjects you know I think like to, to, to pick apart um, social issues or like figures and in this film in particular, these like maniacal figures within the historic context, I think you have to be like, you have to poke fun at them and you have to sort of, you can't take it too seriously because that's also a way to like um, sort of laugh at it and unpack it. And then um, 
I don't know. I think it also for maybe perhaps for a younger audience, it might be a, a way into into learning about certain subjects within the film, maybe, you know, so, yeah. Absolutely. I was, in fact, pleasantly surprised by how much it was a war film, which I didn't really expect. And as Gemma touched on, it really added something that the first two Kingsman films didn't really have. And I thought that that was great. I thought that you were both great. I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, the Kingsman hits theaters in the United States on December 22nd. I'm not sure if that's the case around the world or not. Thank you very much. And I wish you both the best. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thank you. All right, all right. I want to thank the cast of The Kingsman for joining me today. Gemma Arterton, Harris Dickinson, Jaimon Hansu, and Reese Ifans. If you are a fan of the first films, first two films, I can guarantee that you will like this one. In fact, I thought it was better than Kingsman 2. Thank you for joining us for our Spider-Man discussion. Next week, we will be discussing The Matrix Resurrections and Hawkeye as a whole. It has been a crazy end of the year so i just want to thank y'all for doing it with me if you haven't already please subscribe and review on apple Podcasts, five stars yada 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 and going into the new year i am beginning the hunt for a new co-host of the post credit podcast so if you think you've got what it takes shoot me an email at eric at brobible.com other than that i want to wish you all a happy holidays a happy no way home and we will talk to y'all next week peace Make him an awful guy. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.